Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist and all-round bluegrass novice. Today we are talking about Antifogmatic by the Punch Brothers, with Noam Pekelny on banjo, Chris Eldridge on guitar, Gabe Witcher on fiddle, Paul Coat on bass, and led on mandolin by Chris Thiele, who was formerly of the platinum-selling band Nickel Creek. The music they're making on this album is progressive, pioneering, experimental, and their technical mastery of their instruments is arguably beyond anything Bluegrass had seen before. It was produced by John Bryan, who's one of the great living producers... Uh, he's produced records by Katy Perry, Janelle Monet, Sarah Watkins, Tim McGraw, Michael Bublé, Elliot Smith, among many others. Um, I should say that uh, one of the themes of this record, and in fact one of the themes of all the Punch Brothers music, is drinking and cocktails. And in honour of them, I have gone out and drunk a couple of cocktails before recording this podcast. And I, I sat in traffic, which is equally as exciting but I sat in traffic listening to the song Rye Whiskey, so I, I feel tipsy, if nothing else. Great. That's fantastic. And Antifogmatic <laughs> itself, the, the title of the album, is named for a drink. It's, um, it's named for the kind of alcoholic drink that you took in the morning to brace yourself before going out into bad weather. Apparently. Antifogmatic. That's what that uh, word means. That makes means. sense now that you say it. See, I kind of thought, judging by the cover of the record, which is a a man's face floating in some sort of glass science ball with a Bunsen burner underneath it and what looks like a, a pipe attached to it, like a corn cob sort of pipe. It looks like a science experiment on the cover. And so I thought antifogmatic was just some sort of machine that makes fog go away, yeah. which I guess in one way or another it is. I love this band, so I'm just going to geek out for a while because it's this is actually the first album. This is the first record that we've discussed on this podcast that I had listened to before, before we before we got together to discuss iconic bluegrass records. This is the one I know about. And right before we get started, I feel like we have to we have to recognize that this is this is debatable as to whether or not this is a bluegrass record. What do you think? Is this a bluegrass record? I will take outside and fight anybody who tries to tell me this isn't a bluegrass record. How about that? Well, what if what if Chris Thiele tells you it's not a bluegrass record? Are you going to fight with Thiele? Sure. Bring it on, Thiele. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's... I, I think it's going to be interesting to see uh, if we, maybe we'll get some people that write in and say this is not a bluegrass record. I know bluegrass and this is not that. And and fair enough. It doesn't have a banjo kick for every tune. It doesn't have verse, chorus, verse, chorus, refrain kind of style. It doesn't have uh, mandolin chopping all the time. It does have some of my favorite fiddle and banjo and mandolin solos ever recorded. Um, it's got songs about whiskey it's got songs about um, people being wild. It's got songs about dysfunctional relationships. I don't know what else you want from a bluegrass record, Patrick. <sighs> it's true. Um, this is this is about the future of bluegrass, people. This is about the future yes. of bluegrass as seen eight years ago 
in 2010 when this ago. record was made. And also, uh, it's, I mean, I would argue that the Punch Brothers are the most influential, if not most important band of the last 20 years in, in the acoustic string band music tradition. I mean, they, they've they've radically changed kind of everything for young or for just bluegrass and acoustic string band music in general nobody can say that if they're if they're a band now trying to play quote progressive bluegrass no one can say they haven't listened to and been affected by the punch brothers because they're so innovative their arrangements are incredible and they are a super group each each one of the the individual members has multiple side projects that are worthy of listening to and studying and you just if you play the banjo you love Noam Pakelny if you play the guitar you love Critter if you play the mandolin you love everything Thiele's ever done so it was a, ve- that's a, a, big a very deal. they were a very influential band on me that's for sure they were the first they were the first encounter with bluegrass i ever had i was sent to see them by a friend uh, who told me that she thought i would like them and i went to see them do a free concert on Staten Island and I sat down and these five young men came out wearing old vintage suits and, and the fiddle player had a flat cap on his head and, and I think the mandolin player had like a, a vest, what we call a waistcoat in Britain. And I was furious because I thought if I wanted to listen to a bunch of hipsters, I could have stayed in London. <laughs> and then they started playing and my little mind was blown into a million pieces and i thought and at that at that point just for reference at that point if i had asked you who earl scruggs was would you have any idea no i wouldn't have had a clue didn't didn't know anything about bluegrass and uh so that's i think that's at the base of why if anybody wants to say this isn't bluegrass i'm gonna get cross because for me this was my introduction to bluegrass by the blessing thrice the shutters never close the bed's still made the early afternoon as morning mm, as hey are you the underlying senses all the way through this record is that there's this slight dirtiness there's this there's this dissipation Mm -hmm. there's this kind of uh latent wildness there's there's lots of sex and alcohol and breaking up and yeah well Well, i think this is this would be a good time to ask them about how about the origin story of this album because they were living in New York City, the city that never sleeps, uh, when mm-hmm. they made it. And I think they were possibly living a slightly dissipated lifestyle. We actually caught up with three of the band in London on their recent tour. So the first voice you're going to hear in this clip is Fiddler Gabe Witcher. And the guy with the deep baritone who follows him is the banjo player known Pickelney. And you will also hear guitarist Chris Eldridge, otherwise known as Critter, chipping in here and there. Well... We had released our first record, Punch, uh, two years prior, and uh, and had toured on that and needed something else. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the, 
the the first premise of Punch Brothers was to assemble to play this piece that Chris was dreaming up called the the blind leaving the blind, and that was actually kind of a very it was a multi pronged process because the piece wasn't fully finished when we first started rehearsing it, and he was also kind of um, in transition between various record labels, and so even though we first met to play that piece, we weren't quite ready to do it, and so. You know, arguably the first Punch Brothers record in some ways is an album uh, called How to Grow a Woman from the Ground, um, and an album by a five-piece band called Chris Thiele. No, and then, and, then, and then we finally made Punch with the blind leaving the blind, but over, I think the, what Noam was getting at was that the, over the course of making these two records, what we thought was going to be a one-off project, basically playing a piece already composed by Chris, the project showed promise for uh, collaboration. And so all the, you know, uh, uh, as I've heard Chris say many times, the greatest parts of The Blind Leaving the Blind were the parts that the rest of us wrote for him. Yeah, he, I've, I've heard him say that. It's, coincidentally, it's also, he says that when there are firearms pointed at him. Yeah. But <laughs> that's a coincidence. Um, it still says it. What's your favorite part of this record, buddy? Yeah. Hey, hey. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so Antifog was our first attempt at actually starting from scratch and making a band record. And we'd also, in that time between the previous record, Punch, that had the blind leaving the blind, and Antifogmatic, we all moved to the same city. Because for the first, for How to Grow a Woman from the Ground and Punch, we were all scattered. You, Gabe was living in L.A., Noam and I were in Nashville, Greg Garrison, who was the first bass player, was in Denver and Thiele was in New York. So for Antifog, we kind of we had this thing. It was like we're really going to get together. We're going to really be a band. And we we started playing these things. Uh, we all we had this idea that we'd do a residency, like, and we'd play a show every week at this this club called the Living Room, where we'd have a bunch of new music, and you know we were going to have like seventy percent new music every week, and it was going to be week. and. We did that the first week. And uh, the, the thing is, like, you know, for six and a half days leading up to that, the, all we did was rehearse for this show and try and write music and learn music. We're like, that's not going to work. And I know, so, we were lucky if we got, had one, <laughs> one new thing to present. Yeah. Well, we, we wound up learning a lot I of mean, music. writing though. one new thing. Yeah. And, and then after the first show, we were like, okay, we got to, let's do it every other week. And so we did it every other week. And then, and then, it, then was, it was 10 days. It took about 10 days to get ready for that show. It was a little, you know, we had then four free days, but, and eventually we kind of just stopped doing it because it was so crazy. <laughs> and there were, there were crazy yeah, themes. We had the... to start each show with the name, a song, an instrumental with the name of an animal in the yeah, title. Yeah, we gave ourselves because all these There's some these wacky uh, things but anyway, that that process kind of cemented uh, the collaborative thing of the band because we just had to get all this music together in really short notice. Was it expensive moving to New York? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it seems uh, it was crazy at the at the moment. You know, my my monthly rent I think was five times as much in New York as it was in Nashville. Um, but you know, quite literally. Yeah. Yeah. And for, you know, for a small little apartment or flat compared to renting a, a house with a bunch of music friends. So there was like, there was a lot of upheaval, but we were, uh, we were untethered then. Nobody had any, 
real responsibilities. Like we kind of, we kind of cleared our schedules to make it a band. And, um, I think one of the initial stumbling blocks, um, with our first bass player, Greg, was that like we had four people in the band who were essentially single with no responsibilities, who were really re- ready to turn their lives upside down to uh, to move to New York and just kind of dive in head first. And he was just a little bit further along in his life and had one kid and another kid on the way living about an hour and 20 minutes from the airport in the mountains of Colorado. And so it was just kind of this, we got, at the, got to this fork in the road that it was just a little impractical and um amongst other other reasons but we we all moved to new york and it was it just seemed like it was the time to do it you know everyone i always talked to said mm-hmm. like oh yeah if you have the opportunity to live in new york you should do it and here was here was a great opportunity mm-hmm. so we moved there and we had we, we were playing a lot um we were touring a lot less like we didn't have opportunities to go on the road playing at theaters or at festivals mm-hmm. and um and so we were we were around each other, and it was seems like you know kind of looking back on it, it was like a pretty romantic time of just like staying up late, playing music, and um, you know just devoting most of your life to music and to sobering up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's something we've always bonded upon. I think we're the, f- the first group of men that have ever bonded around oh, alcohol. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> really. <laughs> But, you know, I, I think that was one of the uh, special things about the band then, and I guess it's still true to this day, is that, like, the rest of us, all of us in the band had, had kind of made a living at, up to that point being a sideman uh, with, like, someone else's band. And we were all kind of kind of playing as employees and, you know, in completely valid and, and cool projects, but we didn't have something of our own, and we weren't creating music with our peers like it kind of felt like it was going to work with somebody who had been doing this for four decades already and so there wasn't that sense of fraternity that mm-hmm. there um that was kind of brewing with punch brothers hi is this emma hello it is hi emma this is chad from Nonsuch records hey how you doing i'm doing well how are you great thank you is this still a good time to speak with chris Dealey? it's great absolutely super thank you Okay, let me get him on the other line, and I'll Hi. connect you guys. Hey, you guys both there? Hello. Hey, Emma, how are you? Chris, I'm great, thank you very much. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. Um, well, Chris, thank Perfect. you so much for chatting to us, because uh, I know you're in the middle of a live from here season, and it's these are very busy days <laughs> for you. <laughs> They're fairly busy, uh, but it's fine. Perhaps it's, it's actually going to be... what I need. Well, I was going to say, perhaps it might be quite appropriate because we've been asking your fellow band members about the creation of Antifogmatic. And it, so sounds, it sounds like that was a kind of hectic New, Lo- New York time as well. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that was... Oh, it was such a... I will look back on that period... Um, I mean, with 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 the greatest fondness, uh, that that was that was something else. I mean, I I think I think it was kind of you know, that was basically when the band um, as it currently exists started. Yeah. Um, in my in in my opinion, you know, it's so so we we um, that was when we added Paul Coart, um to the mix and and, um, and 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 when I think the band truly became itself. 
after we hired Paul, um, which itself was just sort of like so wonderful, he came in and, and I remember we, we basically played a couple bars um, just of a fiddle tune together. And, and the, the other four of us just looked, looked at each other and, you know, I mean, it was the rest of it was perfunctory. I mean, we didn't even at that point he was, you know, tasked with having to play little bits of the blind leaving the blind. Um, this, this crazy ornate, you know, uh, chamber grass piece that, that I wrote for, for the boys and, 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 uh, and me to play and, uh, the boys and myself to play and, and, um, and then, which he also aced, but it was like, it was enough to just play that fiddle tune. Um, we knew, we knew everything was going to be just fine. And, um, and that he was, he was the fella. It was almost like I could see the next, you know, the next 10, 15 years unfolding, um, you know, in, in like one time through St. Anne's Real or whatever it was that we played together. You know, we convinced uh, Paul Coart to, to join the band. He left, uh, the most one of the most prestigious music schools in the world, the Curtis Institute of Music, to and come get in a van. To come us. get in a van with Bunch Brothers. Wait, did he graduate? Well, it was tricky because he uh, he was really close to graduating, and <laughs> I think on the surface, like he tried to convince them that you know Punch Brothers was this valid, legitimate musical project, and it was you know before. Thiele's star had kind of risen to the upper echelons of everything, you know, before like the Yo-Yo Ma collaborations and all that stuff. And so I think they were suspect um, at the beginning. And somehow Paul negotiated the terms of his release (laughs) uh, that involved that he would graduate in good standing as long as over the first like six months or a year with the band that he would have to um, produce a written report on on how the music business works. <laughs> Currently, that's like I would love I, oh, that's to see go the... what Paul wrote. I've asked for it, but he did like a a, a paper based on ex- his experience of traveling <laughs> around in a van with us and talking to like all the people who worked with us on how the music business works by Paul Court, and that's it's under lock and key I somewhere. I see that. <laughs> 22-year-old Paul Coart straight out of school, first time on the road. Oh, God, it was so idyllic. I, I really, I, I'm so glad that I'm, um, that I have that to look back on. I'm also glad that, that uh, it's not still that way. I, I would die at this point. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm really, uh, really glad that it happened. So we were each other's uh, colleagues and also uh, closest friends, and, and we all lived in the same city, so it was just, um, every day, work, 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 and then to bars like Milk and Honey and um, Little Branch, and and, uh, um, and just kind of discovering adulthood together. Really, there's this way in which musicians grow up um, very fast, like touring musicians, touring professional musicians, and, th- and then there's another way in which in which our our growth is somewhat stunted by that by that um, that that life. So, you know, for me. <clears throat> having uh, having been raised um, with well, for one, a lot of religion, <laughs> a lot of music, um, and then tour- touring with with Nickel Creek all all throughout a time when most people would be going to college and kind of learning how to be adults. Um, you know, there's there's a, a lot of learning. You get a leg up on people in a lot of ways. <laughs> I mean, you know, travel, seeing the world and all that, but you're not you're not really 
there there's this part of of you that's sort of like frozen in in adolescence um so what about the kind of feel of that record because to me it's pretty it's a bit moody i would say sometimes it's even a bit sulky <laughs> <laughs> In some ways, the aesthetic might reflect like the the lighting of a lot of the places that we were frequenting. <laughs> it's kind of dimly lit, like hanging out yeah, in right. dimly lit spots um, and staying up late. And I think that, you know, if you could draw a parallel to kind of some of that that you're mentioning on the record. Um, there's To me, like there's a, I, it, when I have listened back to it, but it's been a little while, it kind of... It really, uh, to me, it sounds like we were so eager to say everything and to say it as quickly as possible and to get it out there as if this was going to be the last record we ever made. Yeah, right. Um, like we had all of our, we were all in New York, we're all in the room, like let's make this record. Okay, we have the time now to do it. And I, there just seemed, seems to be this urgency to the, to the music that in some ways is, uh, you know, maybe overly frenetic. Um, at times, but I think also kind of like a, a really good snapshot of like the time and place and the energy that we had um, in our lives at that point. And That's so. really interesting. I read a couple of reviews of it um, before this, and one of them was talking about how there's barely any space between the notes. They were like, yeah. it's not just about the, the notes that they're playing, right. it's about the, the, the lack of spaces yeah. between hmm. the notes. Yeah, well... Our lives were, yeah, that reflects our, our dwelling spaces. <laughs> yeah, right. It's New York. It's New York for you. there's a machine on the front cover because i i feel that with don't need no that mm -hmm. this just the sound of that opening is oh, like listening to some kind of heath robinson machine where all the parts interlock and play a very specific mm -hmm. role yeah and then and then they kind of let that go and it's almost like the, the machine is warming up and then it just drops and all of a sudden you've got this amazing kind of bluegrass modern pop song. and that is a signature Punch Brothers sound, is what they call the chaos. I think you hear that aesthetic on uh, Don't Need No, um, yeah. that, that way that they can kind of amp up tension and drama and excitement by just letting their instruments go nuts, just go wild. Mm. And, and, it, and it takes their music, which is when it's not in that chaos moment, it's so arranged and it's so orchestrated, it's through composed, it's chamber music. And it's so nice that to have those moments of chaos, of, of unexpected sounds and 
you know, as a listener, you have no idea what's coming next. a little bit of issue on this record in particular I wouldn't say this is true but all their records I would say my my issue if I was going to pick something would be lyrics I find that lyrically this record is there's a lot of kind of animosity towards girlfriends women there's a it's a it's a relationship record it's it is a, it's a relationship a, it's, record I but on most records and I actually think the lyrics are I think the lyrics are one of the things I love most about this record <laughs> I mean I think I think the Punch Brothers entire oeuvre when you really cut down to it, it at least until the last couple of albums was always about dysfunctional relationships she puts my body away next to the trash under the sink along with all of the cleaning supplies and the things that we buy and decide we don't need Next to the Trash is clearly about a weird couple who who are passive-aggressive towards each other and, and can't get along. Uh, Missy is incredible. Missy's one of those songs that there's actually very little action in it, but you totally get the story just through the, the character of the character of the singer and the character of Missy, who is this femme fatale who has clearly ruined this poor man's life. Uh, what, Except what, what so, where? Got? But where? Where is? Where is the ownership that maybe it's his fault? Yeah, this is me. This is she's a good person, and I blew it. It kind of seems like uh, like That's all the women are to blame. I told her once, get thee behind me. Cover up Missy for the love of God I can't not look, I can't not look And I can't do a thing about what I saw Though I wish I could, wish I could She told Cover up Missy for the love of God I can't not look, I can't not look It's like, really? Come on, Chris you have self-control. It's up to you. It's not up to her. Lyrically, you know, there's, there's, um, uh, there's, there's a lot of like, obviously, there's, there's always, there's, punch music in general is a wonderful place to, to sort of, uh, uh, parse through one's, one's romantic feelings, and there's certainly a lot of that. <clears throat> on that record there's there's you can tell that there's some committed relationships and some very uncommitted relationships um and uh and you know that they're sort of they're affecting one another and um and there's 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 um i i love thinking of of anti-phlegmatic and and who's feeling young now as sort of a um as sort of a a couplet um thematically there's there's this this um, this recklessness. There's there's a there's like a romantic recklessness that 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 weaves that kind of runs its course through those two records. And who's feeling young now is kind of like the um, sorry, anti-phlegmatic sets the stage for what for what who's feeling young now acts acts out. 
it's 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 almost as if those two records equal sort of our learning how to be adults and 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 phosphorescent blues kicks off actually being adults so interesting learning how to be adults and specifically how to be adult males in in hopefully happy <laughs> relationships <laughs> right 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 there's yeah so now now it's like with all ashore everyone is 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 you know deeply and happily entrenched in in long-term committed relationships three of us are married two of us have children um you know it's uh, the other two are you know in very committed relationships again there's there's like the difference um in musical development and um and personal development um you know you you have these five five people who are who are better at music than they are at being alive on that on that record um which i think is a fun i think that's a fun juxtaposition um and um and you know so so the guys that that you know write the lyric of don't need no or 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 you are um or rye whiskey or missy or um next to the trash and like all these things um that you know are are it's fun that those are the same people that write the um you know the actual music to something like me and us Cause together looks good when you're alone Looks good when you're together I also want to talk a little bit about Alex. So the song Alex is a great song. It's a beautiful song. But... Again, lyrically, it's it's. I mean, it it's a it's a great concept. It's a great theme, but it doesn't make. It's not very endearing to the singer. Alex, short and sweet. Leave your boyfriend at home and drinks on me next week. Seems like a real good The first verse kind of lets you know that maybe she left a nice boyfriend at home to be out with this kind of skeezy guy. And then he ends up leaving her and keep your feet wet and your eyes dry oh i love that line (sighs) i feel i feel bad for her and then there's the final line of the song itself you're only as good as your last goodbye i was trying to think of what it means and i could only come up with I, i couldn't specify in my mind what it meant because it could mean anything which is i think it it's I digress. No, it's good. That's, that's, it's a good I lyric. think that's exactly why it's brilliant. It is an I empty do, epithet, and it completely yeah. sums up the character of of the singer. The, the, yeah, the person who's singing this song is a terrible person who has treated yeah. a woman uh, very badly, led her along like crazy, and then dumped her brutally and got exactly what he wanted out of it. And yeah. that last line right. and the kind of you know the pretend. The, the faux wisdom of it absolutely 
sums that up and tells you why she should never have dated him in the first place. Oh God, I forgot. I forgot about Alex too. Alex is on there. That's a Alex is a perfect. Like that's a perfect snapshot at those guys, at those five guys. So that that was basically a um, sort of a musical snapshot of the scene revolving around the Bagot Inn, which is. But the the Bagot Inn was this wonderful, this wonderful jam presided over by this this character character of a fella. Um, I think in his 70s, uh, we, everyone just called him Sheriff Uncle Bob. And Sheriff Uncle Bob, this, this wonderful sort of downtown New York figure, um, played the dobro, sang, sang, sang all of these sort of debauched anthems. And so there are all these people, all these, all these, we were, we were just children thinking that we were adults in there, you know, drinking Jameson and, and this, this, this weird beer, I don't even know if it's still around, called, called Bare Knuckle Stout, and playing, playing fiddle tunes. And, and the, the boys and I would go in there. Michael Dave uh, was, was, a prom, was a fixture. And, and yeah, there was, that, there was this one girl, Alex. Um, you know, so I was as single as the day is long. And, and, and Alex would come in there with her, with her boyfriend. And nothing ever happened. I mean, I... I talked to her a couple times you know and and i think we at one at one point or another there was there was you know there was sort of like the the guilty round that was purchased you know by one or the other of us for the other knowing full well that there, there was an impossible uh, alliance <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and so then the you know the rest of that is fully imagined um on 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 my behalf and and um and uh you know uses uses this real person's name um and you know and, and like so much of my songwriting is just it's, it's got like a hypothetical outcome of a real situation yeah um and uh and 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 it's a it's a place for me to you know for instance but what if i was the kind of guy who would just try and like go out with this guy's girlfriend <laughs> uh, <laughs> and that was, and that was where all of us were. So there was like that was like this one imaginary scenario of mine, but also wrapped in with like all these stories from from the other, from my bandmates and and, and our friends. that have stayed with you that emerged in, in that uh, album? For example, seafaring. The woman <laughs> and the bell. There's true. some historical yeah. seafaring going yeah. on. I don't know what's up with the seafaring theme. The, the thing is, the lyrics are really... That's Steely's department. We, we all have veto power. Everybody in the band has full veto power. 
but he's the he's pretty much the writer of the lyrics. But it is weird that there is a consistent nautical thread that goes through every record. Well, I the way I see it, I mean, he he would claim that there's you know, and I, I you know, I agree there's this like there's so much romance in in the sea and the water and like the coast and like where you when you run out of land, like what happens and like the whole entire culture around that. Um I also have a theory that um subconsciously that Thiele is just painfully aware um that you know the mountains have already been claimed by bluegrass artists and so there's you know there's all these mountain there's so much bluegrass about the mountains and so he had to look elsewhere and so that's right so it was either the you know the seas or the deserts <laughs> i hear the peal of our wedding bells many miles away and months We haven't said that this was recorded at United Recording Studios in Hollywood and that they had used exactly the same room when they recorded Phosphorescent Blues and All Ashore. Hmm. So that means that they like that room and that this was the first time they recorded there. I, I, I think we should also talk about in this recording session, uh, John Bryan, who produced it. Um, it's a very interesting sounding record. You know, I... I I loved some of the the records that John Bryan made with with uh, with uh, of Montreal, and and particularly on this record, he goes for a very very dry sound on all of their instruments and on their vocals. It's almost like you can hear the the sound of everything bouncing off the four walls and the ceiling of the room they're in. You can hear the room, and it's not a big room. It's a dry, kind of dead sounding room. So it gives this album an incredible clarity. But it doesn't give it a lot of space. I think when I listen to this record, I feel like I'm kind of sitting in in my living room, and they're and they're playing right in front of me, um, and I love that. I, I've heard mixed reviews of of from different people about how they feel about the sound of this record. Personally, I love it, and I would be very curious to hear. I would be very curious to hear how they how they feel about it in hindsight, because it, I think that it's a it's a big decision to make to make a record especially with acoustic string instruments that just love being soaked in reverb to make it that dry. Yeah. And it's interesting. I found a review uh, written at the time that it came out, which, which spoke to that exact issue. It said, as clever as all this music is, it's hard to listen to anti-fogmatic and not wish that it just breathed a bit more. I disagree. They're giving their listeners a magnifying glass and no matter how closely you look, it still delivers. Um, that's a big feat, you know? They're, uh, they're hiding nothing. How did the connection with John Bryan come about? Well, John, John had been a friend of uh, Thiele's and mine for a while, um, having kind of frequented uh, this club called Largo in Los Angeles. I said, you gotta come back and see this guy, John, I showed up, and within the first 10 minutes, my mind was just blown wide open. And from then on, I went every week. When it came time to make this record, we were, you know, very excited about the idea of, well, maybe we should, maybe we could ask John, maybe he'd do it. And so we did, and he said, yeah. Um, and then we got to town, and he said, I'll tell you what. <laughs> he said, 
this is how I want this to go. He said, I'll get you guys all set up in the room and make sure all the sounds are good. And you guys go and record during the day. Oh, I forgot to mention John is, he basically keeps vampire hours. So he rises around dusk and kind of hovers for a couple of hours and really gets going around 11 or midnight. Uh, and he'll go until the sun comes up. Then he goes to bed. Well, we weren't really going to keep those hours and, and, and do this. So it, it all worked out fine, but we would record all day. And right about the last two or three takes of the night, we kind of see John in the hallway of the studio. And as the last take was going down, we'd see him come into the control room. And uh, and then we go back and listen down to what we had done. And he would bring uh, cheese and port. And he'd open up the port and we'd hang out and maybe listen to more stuff that we attract or talk about deep philosophical things that relate somehow to music and music performance. Which that was incredible. Yeah, he would talk, he would launch into these like incredible soliloquies that would last for like 45 minutes on whatever. And it usually was at least tangentially related to whatever was going on. But but it was like, it, it, yeah, it was funny. Like, it didn't feel to me like John really did so much producing on that record. I was kind of, you know, thought he should have received some sort of credit on the next record because <laughs> after we would do these takes and we'd listen, he'd talk and he'd kind of just go off on whatever it was that was the matter at hand. Uh, and it was always, he's a brilliant, like super wise uh, fellow. Uh, and I feel like a lot of that stuff kind of set... Set really uh, set in on the next record. Set in on the next record. Yeah, things about, um, you know, uh, you know, he had this one thing that he said because that that is a pretty heady record, anti-fogmatic. It's really dense. Um, the music's very very dense, and he he had this one thing. I remember I always thought it was cool where he said, you know, no one will be able to accuse this music of being overly intellectual if they if their body is moving if they're like. If, involuntarily their bodies like kind of grooving to the music when they hear it which i don't know if the music quite does it on that record but we were that was a goal for the next record do you look back on that record and wish you'd done anything differently absolutely sure, every, every record yeah yeah, yeah that's just a part of the process i mean you can't you know you you, you can't know the things <laughs> that you're about to learn by doing something so uh you know in looking back and and having having moved almost oh what almost ten years uh, definitely ten years from writing that record uh, you know having learned so many things at this point yeah I can look back on that record and be like well if I were to make that record now I would do this 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 this, this who would this. you have play banjo uh, it wouldn't be no banjo. <laughs> We're all perfectionists anyway, so we're going to be paying an extraordinary amount of attention to detail. But I just think we were so excited about what this band could do that we wanted to... It's like getting a you know a, a really amazing sports car. You want to take it for a spin. You want to open it up. You want to take it out on the highway and just like put it through its paces. And I think we were all so excited about what we could all do that that was a part of... Uh, part of what that record was. It's like, well, we can do this and we can do this and oh, check this out. This is great. No, what if we did this and this and then, you know, everyone got really excited about that kind of stuff. And, and so I think that's why that record ended up as dense as it is. 
so very quickly, can I ask a about a couple of a couple of the songs that have always completely baffled you? Baffled <laughs> One of them is "Welcome Home." I, w- I wondered what "Welcome Home" was inspired by. That one baffles me too a little bit. <laughs> it feels like it's some kind of historical story about a relationship with somebody's father. Am I getting that completely you, yeah, wrong? Th- no, that's that's actually pretty close. I don't know if we are at liberty to reveal who it's about necessarily, but at liberty or aware or aware. <laughs> um, no, I think that's I think that's that's close. It's kind of abstract. Yeah, it's abstract. And I think it was meant to be abstract in that yeah. in that kind of way. Um, but I, yeah, I haven't listened to it to that song probably in seven years, which is sad because that's one of the only ways to actually make music at home as a musician is to listen to yourself on Spotify. <laughs> so you mean to make money? Yeah. 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 <laughs> so when I say music? Yeah. yeah. Make money. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the ones where, looking back now, I would have uh, approached differently in the recording. We had this this grand idea in the, you know, whatever we would call the chorus, that everybody, everybody would take a different word of the line and hold the note over, which is a cool thing in theory. You get these cool chords. You get these cool chords, but what ends up happening is you just can't understand the lyrics. And so you lose everyone on the chorus. So I would have, if we were to ever recut that song, I would I would reapproach how we would handle that section. You know, I think the music is is beautiful on that one though. You still play some of these songs live. Are there any that are particularly special to you? On that wow. record, this is like yeah. resounding silence. Yeah, no, the, the answer, no, well, in my answer, the answer is no. Yeah, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, rye whiskey is like um, become like a, a real calling card for the band, um, despite the fact that it's it's so different from a lot of the original music that we've written. You baby cuter makes yourself taste sweeter. Oh boy, rye whiskey makes your heart. Rye whiskey has to be up there for me. I know you said that mm-hmm. it's probably not the band's favourite because they have to play it every single time they play live because people they expect do. them expect it from them. It's like uh, Neil Young's Heart of Gold. Got to do it every show, but it's also their most bluegrassy song in terms of lyrical content and groove and style and it's got like kind of a fiddle tune hook and it's also got a that little crooked element to it it's got an extra meter or something like that that um that hints back to those old time fiddle tunes also lyrically i love rye whiskey i i you know it's great makes the band sound sweeter makes the room feel hotter love that rye whiskey does all those things yeah 
I love, I love, love, love the song. This is the song. Brackets, good luck. Yeah. I think that that is, it's a, it's the closer uh, of the record. And it's, it's, it's only four minutes long and it's just gorgeous. It has great instrumental playing by everybody. Um, it's got an incredible outro. It's just like, it really is the, the, they, they wrap it up and put a bow on it as Thiele says. Um, in rye whiskey that's that's the song that wraps this record up and puts a bow on it this is the song where I listen this is the song where I sit still I call the dogs off all the things I'm missing and to everyone but you it kind of goes to counter what I was saying earlier as my critique of the record. We're presented with this song where the first line is, this is the song where I listen. This is the song where I sit still. So all of a sudden, there's a little bit of uh, self-awareness thrown in there. And and you get this very introspective, kind of regretful sounding song. I, I, I always read this song as a total breakup song, but that moment in the breakup when there's a stillness and there's an acceptance and there's kind of this mutual understanding between the two parties you know the second verse kind of talks about i think it's about when you move your stuff and it's all on the curb and there's this image of somebody picking up broken pieces of porcelain from a curb that was in front of their apartment and it's it's a totally different song and uh I also, the the vibe of the song, this more introspective, but there's a lot of tension and a lot of high emotion in it, comes out in the music so strongly. It's the it's it's a brilliant example of matching the the energy and the, the, the kind of sonic textures to the lyrical content. Good luck, good luck, good luck. These are tough times, we'll get by. melancholy it's full of experience and the hurt that comes with relationships a slight world weariness but i think what's incredible about it is that even though it's um a little bleak it's also very beautiful it sounds quite soothing Mm -hmm. and even Mm -hmm. more importantly it's timeless the feelings in it go so deep um and the attitudes toward between humans are so universal that it it resonates on different levels depending on when you listen to it and i think mm-hmm. it's an incredibly powerful song in today's current climate um it, it it actually could feel like a sort of anthem for for the difficult time that america's going through this is the song works works its way into sets very frequently because um, that song is that song has kind of taken on this new life, to where it's not it's not really about romance. It's not it's not a romantic song to me anymore. It's actually it's actually more of a like um, 
it's more of a pep talk now or like this this like a mantra of like these are tough times but we'll get by good luck good luck um so that that's like i'm kind of i'm kind of actually playing that song as often as i can at this point <laughs> it makes me feel a little bit better about about things which is which is odd usually usually the only music that makes me feel better about things is written by other people um but maybe maybe no but maybe that's maybe maybe i'm such a different person now than i am when i wrote that lyric and and you know the boys and i are so different than we were when we wrote that music that it's like that it, it really does feel like someone else wrote it and it's like giving me some <laughs> giving me some like a pep talk it is a nice compliment to the political songs on all ashore isn't it mm, mm, yeah yeah it was that i do like hearing um this is the song i do i i like i like hearing that in in conjunction with those with those new songs yeah i mean i think i think to a certain extent you know this is the song closes that record there's um on this one like it's going out of style has kind of an analogous relationship to, to its record that that this is the song has to anti-fogmatic um and 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 that's that might even be an interesting thing it's like that this um that band that punch brothers however long ago it was now um that band in, feeling those kinds of thoughts writes this is the song and this band feeling those kinds of thoughts writes like it's going out of style question was going to be what is the cocktail that our listeners should make for themselves to sit and drink while they're listening to anti-fogmatic oh well uh so actually there is there is a cocktail i i I actually commissioned a cocktail uh for anti-fogmatic um from the guy so that, you know, when I talk about traipsing around bar to bar, I really kind of mean going to one specific bar uh, and actually sort of bouncing between two specific bars owned by the same person. Who, was this who, milk and honey? Um, yes, exactly. Milk and honey was was the, the um, was the main one, and then the other one was Little Branch, uh, both owned by the late great Sasha Petrosky. Um, and sort of presided over by by uh, Michael McElroy and Sam Ross. I, I asked Sammy, Sam Ross, to, to invent, he invented a drink for us, the anti-fogmatic. We got to track down that recipe. It's in a book. I would recommend making that. It's a little bit ornate, but it is so delicious. It's a great cold weather drink. And do you know what, listeners? We did track down that recipe because we love you and we want you to be happy. So here it is. The ingredients for the anti-fogmatic cocktail are two ounces of rye whiskey, three quarters of an ounce of fresh lemon juice, three quarters of an ounce of honey syrup, two dashes of Angostura bitters, a whole egg and some champagne. And the method is that you combine all the ingredients except the champagne into a shaker. You shake it without ice. Apparently this emulsifies the egg. Not sure what that means, but do it anyway. I'm sure it's great. Then once you've done that, add plenty of ice and shake it very hard. Strain what you've got into a chilled flute, a champagne flute or a coupe, and top it with the champagne. Thank you so much for listening to this week's The Breakdown podcast. 
please subscribe and review our podcast and share it and do all that kind of stuff on iTunes and wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to the Punch Brothers for sitting down and chatting with us. Their new album, All Ashore, is out on Nonesuch Records and you still have time to buy it for someone as a Christmas present. Uh, thanks also to Cy Cliff, who was our sound engineer in London. And you can check out his music at cycliff.com. This is the end in this series, but we'll be back with more episodes in 2019. So until we return, have yourself a happy new year. Bye.